Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. My name is Sabrina, your host. And on this first episode of the new year, we have Jason Paul Cox of El Destilado and Cinco Sentidos with us. Uh, Jason and I and Gabrielle spoke together uh, last fall. And it was um, it was a short but good conversation. Um, we talked about the restaurant that he co-owns along with Joseph Gilbert, uh, El Destilado in Oaxaca, where he that where he primarily resides. And we also discussed um, their house brand, Cinco Sentidos, which is available in the states. Not all the expressions uh, that they offer in the restaurant, but um, a lot of really good ones. Uh, this spirit, uh, this agave distillate, is bottled as an agave distillate or an agave spirit, not as mezcal. And Jason talks about uh, why they decided to go that direction. And he also gives us uh, some really interesting information about certain expressions and producers, as well as some insight into his uh, newest project. So I think you guys will really enjoy that. And I also uh, wanted to let you all know that Tuyo is going to be hosting some really cool events in the coming months in New York City. So if you guys are local to New York and you're not on our mailing list, um, please sign up for it so that you can learn about these events. I think anybody that's interested in Mescal that's listening to this podcast will be definitely interested in, in what we're up to. So I look forward to sharing that news with you guys really soon. In the meantime, um, I wish everyone a great beginning to a hopefully very wonderful and prosperous new year. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Salusita. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today, we are here with Jason Paul Cox from Cinco Sentidos. Hello. Hi. Hi, Jason. Gabrielle is here as well. Hi. Hey, Gabs. So um, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Mm -hmm. This has been um, a wonderful sort of spontaneous uh, occurrence, I think. Um, thanks for reaching out to us. That was super cool. And we've had a chance to be together over the course of the past couple of days um, at an event or two. It is Mezcal Week in New York City and all over. Um, so there's a lot of events going on. And I know that you're very busy right now. Um, running around the city, <laughs> talking to people about your brand and what you do. So um, I I guess let's start with uh, a little bit of background. And I think as a disclaimer, I want to let everybody know that, um, Jason, you were recently on a podcast called Show to V with Mike G. And you guys went super um, deep into kind of the origin story of where you come from and what you've studied and where you've traveled to. So I encourage anybody um, that wants the real deep in-depth background um, to go check out that podcast. Um, Mike's great and he has a lot of really cool people on that. If you like listening to us, you'll probably like listening to him. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that being said, um, you're originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yes. Hoosier, Hoosier, Hoosier. Hoosierville. Yeah. People call it Indy, don't they? Um, Indianapolis is Indy. Indianapolis Fort Wayne is, is okay. Fort Wheezing. <laughs> Maybe. <I'm>, Lovely. <laughs> that, was, that was a thing we said in high school, I think. <laughs> nice. And how old are you? I'm 32. Oh, yeah. young so and over here. Yeah, we'll just get that out of the way like, early <laughs> on. Um, okay, so you studied politics and economics at Denison University. Mm-hmm. And then um, you taught English education and were was a reproductive health instructor in Panama for the Peace Corps. Correct. Yeah. Great. And then a contract medical interpreter with the Ohio Hispanic Coalition. Yes. So working in hospitals with a Hispanic, um, mostly immigrants, in any sort of medical encounter that they had, hospitals, emergency room, um, psych exams births deaths OBGYN, like wow. every in that scenario and it's funny i look back at that and i think that was a different life that i lived you know because sure. so, it was a really different day-to-day -day and the stresses that that you would face are, are different than what i do now but it was part of who i am and i just still think of it really fondly i loved it oh yeah i mean i'm sure that you saw a lot um in the time that you were doing that was that for about a year that you were um working in that a, field a year and change a yeah. year and change yeah um 
and then started working towards becoming a courtroom interpreter. And that's what's brought, brought me to Oaxaca. Um, study has brought me to Oaxaca. Yeah. Where you've been located since 2015? Yes, I moved down uh, New Year's Eve, 2015. Oh. So I'll hit I'll hit five years. Uh, so I kind of always Coming celebrate, up. you know, my, yeah. my my anniversary with everyone else. They just don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> and so I guess um, why don't we start um, with El Destilado, your restaurant that you are co-owner with, correct? Mm -hmm. And um, can you tell me the other owner's name? Sorry, uh, Joseph Gilbert. Joseph Gilbert. And how did yeah. you guys meet? So Joseph and I meet in Oaxaca on day one. This is early October 2015. Um, I decided I wanted to study Spanish in Oaxaca. Um, good language school. Obviously, the things that are exciting and fun about Oaxaca attract me to spend some time there too. But my intention is to go there for a month and come back and present my exam for courtroom interpreting certificate. Um, and we lived in the same homestay, I think on day two. If, if it wasn't the first night, it was the second night where, you know, we were, we're living in the homestay, we're eating breakfast or lunch. And, you know, Joseph tells me about going to a mezcal tasting hosted by Judah Cooper. And that's when, I don't know, the spark fired, if you will. Yeah. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Are yeah. you, are you still friends with Judah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, let's see him a little less these days. Yeah, he's a busy guy. Uh, he's, no, he's, he's, um, but no, he's been, for both me and Joseph, in terms of first our restaurant and then the mezcal, he's been a, a mentor in some sense. He's really been helpful in terms of um, yeah, advice, ideas, contacts, um, and, and also kind of a good voice for how to try to build an ethically-minded business uh, when it comes to mezcal. For those of you listening, um, we're talking about Vago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. Cool. So the inception of El Destilado, the origin story. <laughs> so let's see. I go in October. I spend a month. I do my classes. Um, I end up drinking a lot of mezcal while I'm there. Very antithetical what I came to do. You know, I was like, I would just want to be somewhere quiet and study all day and prepare for this you know, if I get this certificate to become a courtroom interpreter, it's a life-changing accomplishment. It means I'm employable to do trial interpreting pretty much anywhere in the States. And that's what I'm after. And mezcal just kind of comes up and derails me a bit. So first first this tasting with Judah, and, and it's not so much about the taste of the spirit at that time, but the story and the people behind it. And then tasting in, in bars in Oaxaca and going to Mezcaloteca and hearing the formal background idea and then some other mezcalerias that are more laid back and um you know before i'd left it was like all right i've got to go see how this is made and who's making it and i'm happy i found time to do it um in between your studying yeah, yeah. it was like hey let's not have class today you know <laughs> like i want to go at the matatlan of all places um where, where i don't go these days um but uh and something just seeing it and understanding that people are making this beautiful spirit oftentimes in in their backyards or you know their their home property it reminded me of organic farming and that when i was in ohio i also ran a, a farmer's market on the weekends at 400 west rich in, in columbus um and it's like wow this is this is this is it this is an organic farmer you know making and, and this is an essence it's a person it's a place so I, I left intrigued and I left with a bunch of mezcal in my bag. Um, I went home, I presented my exam. It was positive I'd failed. Um, I thought that I'd missed the slang more than anything else. And it's an intense exam. It's simultaneous, right? I mean, they oh give my you- Oh I can't even imagine. You know, you just basically listen to a trial and in audio and then you're, you're outputting it. So it's one of those things you don't even really recall when you do it. And it's a 60 day, it takes 60 days to grade. I'm like, man, I failed gotta go back to Oaxaca and keep studying <laughs> and um you know and I was like and I maybe I should go work in a bar because I can learn a bit more informal Spanish sure. that way great idea yeah yeah I know in the back of my mind I, I think I knew you know I think I knew yeah but I was like I just I, I loved it um I loved the the hospitality the people um just kind of the open door policy where people it was really easy to make friends um and mezcal was very intriguing so I, I get this idea to come back. I contact Joseph. Is he there the whole time? Like while you came home? Yes. Okay. So Joseph is, at this point, I think he maybe got to Oaxaca the day before I did. 
And his goal was three months of Spanish study and then a year of staging at different Oaxacan restaurants to learn about Oaxacan cuisine. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I sent him a message and I'm like, I think I want to come back. And he's like, cool. I think I want to move out of my homestay. So let's move in, be roomies. And I'm going to try to find a job at a mezcal bar. Um, really it was actually it was a really nice and fun part of my life it, it took basically took my name off the, the registered interpreter roster went and visited family for a couple months um took it as like a downtime that i never really gave myself and um yeah i mean because we skipped over the past history of like your work and stuff you guys this is a very work-driven human being that we're talking <laughs> to right now <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's true um so, but I, you know, that, at that point I had a chance to go visit some family and then I, I come down to Oaxaca and great state of mind, great, great idea. I go into La Mezcalarita, I ask for a job. Hey, do you need a bilingual bartender to help explain what, how mezcal is made? I start working there a couple of days later and Joseph at this point is working at a restaurant called Origen, mm-hmm. really, really, really excellent restaurant. Um, you know, Barumi's. He comes in after work. We're tasting through our mezcals, uh, or no, the mezcalitas mezcals, trying to decipher them, unpack them. Um, I'm going out and trying to visit producers in spare time. Where are you learning about the producers that you're visiting? Is it just word of mouth, friends? A little bit of both. I mean, you know, that's at the end of the day, every mezcaleria more or less says where they're sourcing their mezcal from. So it's like, all right, let's roll out to Chicapa. Let's roll out to uh, Santa Catarina Minas. Um, and mezcal... I think it's still, I feel, it feels this way still, but at that point it was definitely very accessible where you could walk up to somebody's palenque and, hey, how's it going? No, my name is Jason and I'd like to try some mezcal. Um, and so doing that a little bit for fun and working the mezcalerita. And I think this happens in the service industry a lot, right? Like you have friends in the service industry, you start observing the things that you work at and little by little we're like, man, you know, if I ran this place, maybe I would do this a little differently. Or if, if this, I can't believe they do this. I can't believe they don't do that. Or wouldn't it be cool if, yeah. um, so one night it was like, it was like the day after like a pretty crazy party in Mexico city. Both of us have had, um, rough nights to put it that way. And, um, the next day we're, um, just like walking in Mexico city. And I was like, yo, should we try to do something? You know, like we're gonna give this a shot. And he's like, Yeah, I think I think we should, you know. Oh, you mean like hangover day? You had your brilliant On idea. hangover day, it was the brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to like not go too far off the rails, like we were facing some struggle. I mean, basically between the two of us, there's definitely a lost phone, probably two lost wallets. We're trying to get like money wired to us. It was it was it was a challenging scenario. Um that wasn't really of our making, but um They force you to drink. Yeah, <laughs> if it wasn't of your making, somebody truly forced you to have your hands and just pour and pour mezcal until you that, forgot your wallet. That's happened to you one or a few times. They forced me. Yeah, I know. Me. I, I, I relate. Yeah. It was um, <laughs> touche. <laughs> um, yeah, a series of unfortunate events, and uh, I don't know. It was something where like we we figured out a problem, we worked through a struggle, and and it was like. I think that we could work well together. That's actually a really good point because when your back is against the wall and you just have each other <laughs> to yeah. help, then if it works out, that is there's something to be said in that as far as the relationship goes in the future. So we decided to do this. And by this, I mean, let's go start looking at um, real estate. Let's see what we can start renting, you know? And is Joseph um, a chef? It, like, was his interest in working at restaurants on the food side or was it also on the spirit side? Um, he has a deep interest in spirits before he moved down to Oaxaca. He was doing some front of house stuff, but his background is kitchen. Okay. Um, that's like a good li- balance then. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he had definitely a very holistic or global perspective on the restaurant industry. Um, you know, his goal was to do a Mexican restaurant in his hometown, you know, to go back to San Francisco, but he wanted to learn and it's not, it's very different than sometimes like some celebrity chefs do where they fly in somewhere for three days and they eat at the top spots and they're like, all right, I learned how to make Oaxacan food. <laughs> like he's like, I want to be there for a year, you know, at the very least and work beside chefs and go out to, to work with the Las Cocineras Tradicionales and, and learn everything. And 
you know, on, on the flip side, it's like, I want to understand everything about Mescal. Right. This is such a, like a vast, mystic, incredible spirit. So you knew from the beginning that the restaurant was going to be other, like food-based and in equal part spirits-based. I don't know. I We didn't, I mean, I'm the person that came up with, with the idea of El Destilado, right? I'm like, I want to have an ex, expansive collection of distillates. I want this to be a place where you can learn. Um, I knew Joseph was a good cook. Um, I knew that food was going to be a part of it. I did not think that it was going to be like the tasting menu beast that it is today. And I'm blown away. I'm so appreciative of our kitchen staff and, and Joseph and our former chef, Julio Aguilera, um, who really turned this space that is, by all accounts, not a viable restaurant space. I mean, we're talking about a 1930s home with a domestic kitchen mm. that we converted into a 32-seat place where you can have a nine-course meal and it can be one of the most impactful culinary experiences of your life. Um, I have no, I, I, just, I, I can't take any credit for that. Um, that was Joseph and Julio learning how, like, look at this little alley over here. Let's have a hearth. It's like... Stuff in the States would not fly probably how we've built our kitchen to a certain degree. Um, but I started seeing that in Joseph's food really early. So first, we we don't have a liquor license. We're applying for it. Uh, I'll take a step back. Um, we're like, let's go look at places. And the first and only spot we saw, the landlord was like, uh, I already got someone who's going to rent it here, but I'll let you see it. You know, like, hmm, Okay. And it was like, okay, this is it. We want we want it to be our place. So at this point, we have, and we still, we've never had an outside investment. But at this point, we had no business plan. We had nothing written down. We had ideas that we wanted to do something. And we have this beautiful space where I was like, can you give us a copy of your keys and let us think for a week? Can I just give you like a deposit so we can be here and really feel this place? It ended up throwing like a couple parties, you know, like, yeah, just like to after test work. Out the space. Hey, yeah. is, this gonna, is the vibe right? Yeah, for real Can though, you know. Can we create an environment here? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we ended up having you know, a lot of fun and it was like, cool, this is a place and okay, we could put the bar here and how are we going to put tables in this small little room and here, this, that, and the other. And, and Joseph is not even talking to me. He's just kind of figuring out that kitchen and I have nothing to to to, to, I mean, to at the same time there. that you guys were like dreaming about how this was going to look logistically and conceptually. Was there um, a thought process around what it looks like to be a business owner in Oaxaca City? Like, I mean, you you mentioned like I you're in you're in the place that you work, and you're like I will do this different. I will change this. Uh, there's a few places in Oaxaca already that they had, you know, they have really good cuisine and they have really good mezcal. Mm -hmm. So you know what you were not trying to invent something really out of the ordinary, but you had an idea that this hasn't happened. Was I, was that the was the line more around those those? That's I think I think for me on the service aspect of things and the mezcal side of things, I wanted a place where our staff was hyper competent about mezcal um where you could get a good lesson if you wanted to but not so formal or didactic as mezcaloteca is right it's like oh i'd like to have someone who can guide you through a spirits tasting but we can listen to some music at the same time you know we can cut back and we can have craft beer and have something that's not not just um a tasting bar mm -hmm. um joseph had his own ideas in terms of the kitchen that were i think a bit more operational than about um I would do this, I would do that. I think it was more of like, uh, there's a way that I could probably run a kitchen a bit differently here um, and and offer, you know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but at the end of the day, I th he's very interested in and was interested in and not recreating what is already exists in Oaxaca. We're not doñas, we don't make tlayudas, we, we don't have the that background. But how do we take, these really incredible ingredients here and do something a little bit different with them. How can we, how can we represent this a different way? Let's, let's, let's play, let's invent. Um, I didn't realize he was up to that, you know, like to be honest, it was something Joseph's pretty guarded, you know, and he, pro he probably won't show up here for an interview, but uh, he, he's got an incredible mind when it comes to the kitchen without a doubt. Um, well, it seems that because you guys have had the success over the years that you have, you know, there's something to that between the two of you bringing your skill set together and growing and developing. I'm sure like yeah. the, who you were when you started is not who you are now. Right. Yeah, definitely. 
definitely evolved a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we decided to rent the place and little by little, we don't have a liquor license. Um, we open as a cafe, you know, but we have all this mezcal that we've bought, labeled, bottled and labeled. Um, so we're like handing out cards, like come back at night and ring the doorbell, you know, so. And the mezcal that you bought was all from directly from the producers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you knew right away that was the model that you wanted to have. You, you weren't interested in bringing brands in. Were you open at the same time that Piedra Lumbre was open? We were, um, which was awesome. Yeah. I really missed the first Piedra Lumbre. Uh, it was that a really was, special place. We, it was just, we were so lucky the the one time that we were in Oaxaca that that we were able to spend more time than, than we, it was just perfect timing. There was this, this party for Marca Negra and a friend of ours work with, with them and just, it was there. And soon after that, I think that there was that was one probably they they closed after like a few years after that but it was it was amazing that place was pretty amazing yeah and it had more or less the 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 condiments that you're saying they were like you know speakeasy certain food i think they were doing like a, it looked like a dining table only mm -hmm. set up it was pretty weird <laughs> yeah but pretty yeah. awesome yeah really a special place so um, from from the time that you guys got the the keys and you decided this was the space that you were going to have, how long from that point until it was really functioning with like the liquor license where you guys were um, with a, a license a oh, year, okay, a yeah. full year. I mean, after a certain point, I would go to the municipality frequently and hey, what's up? Do you need any more paper, paperwork, whatever? Yeah. And finally, it's like, hey, we know you guys are operating. Just don't have a scandal. Okay. Um, so that was about six months where it was like ring a doorbell and then it turned into if you want to have a great meal, like the place has one door open type of thing. Um, yeah. And then a year we actually got the license. So. And this was in 2016 or? 20? 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 20. No, 2017. Wow. Yeah. Early yeah. 2017, I guess when we got the, the license. So. Great, but you're still in the same place, the same spot. Mm -hmm. Great, and yeah. just so everybody knows, um, obviously we'll, we'll link to all of this. So if any of you are traveling soon, um, you'll definitely have to hit it up. Were you having Cinco Sentidos already labeled? Yes. At that time, when when the transition of like buying and having maybe or not the label was the label always present? It was in a very different form. Um, at when we first started this, um, so you always offer it as your brand at your place or house brand that's what you bring right and and that was something that i think at first we never really thought about doing um you know about exporting or, or expanding distribution it was let's have something that's very from here that you can only really get at a destilado um it has to have a name it has to have a package it has to have transparency and at that time i was also like pretty pretty righteous about fair pay for producers and, and transparency as well. And after a while, it took about a year where I realized that if you're paying, um, you know, significantly higher than market rate, rate prices for your mezcal, for your mezcaleria, but you're only buying 30 liters every two months, you're not making a huge impact on the mezcalero or his family. Um, so I think sometimes getting phone calls from Escaleros, I've got a new batch, I've got a new batch. And I'm like, well, I've got a small restaurant. Um, kind of like, if I really want to support the people we're working with, um, I need to, we need to take this elsewhere. We need, we need, to, we need to open up a market. Um, so El Destilado Cinco Sentidos was our back bar project. And then it's turned into, it was a little library. And then it turned into, okay, we'll bring some of this to, the, to, to people who, who, who want to try it. How many expressions do you had in the restaurant right now? We got thirty six bottle. Um, so with, with your with your brand, yeah, thirty six different expressions across twelve producers in four states. But not uh, all of them are available here. No, right? no. So we kind of work full time with five producers, five different regions. Um, at this point, I think that we've brought in about twenty twenty two SKUs to the states. Mm -hmm. um, those end up in different markets. So, you know, a, a ninety liter batch of something. It's like okay, let's send that all to California or let's send that all to Texas. Mm -hmm. um, but we're trying to grow a little bit, but horizontally, not vertically. You know, it's not trying to pressure producers to make more to satisfy an increasing demand, which is increasing 
slowly, not, not yeah. much. Yeah. Um, but also include other people who, who we've been curating expressions from for our restaurant. That's a very interesting, um, like the, the point of facilitation that it comes through the restaurant and then, you know, would come out to the larger market in the United States. Um, that's really cool. Can you tell us what you brought us to try today? Yeah. Um, so we have a papalome. Um, papalome is a different colloquial name for agave potaturum. So in the valleys centrales, people are going to call this tobala. Um, in Amando's town of Santa Maria Iscatlan, we're going to call it papalome. Um, next, hopefully next year, Amando will be harvesting his first ever batch of cultivated papalome. Historically, everyone has always been wild harvesting. Mm-hmm. Santa Maria Iscatlan sits very close to the Puebla border. Um, has about 500 inhabitants and a huge expanse of communal land. So it's never been a prerogative to plant agave. There's this El Cerro always had enough. You know, okay. the hills, the mountains always had enough. Um, before we started working together, he, his dad was working with um, a brand associated with the bioreserve. And they kind of brought the initial impulse to plant agave. Um, and they, his son has carried that along the way too. And uh, the years to maturity for the tobala, for the purutorum, is that about uh, uh, 10? Yeah, anywhere between 6 and 10. Yeah. So people are finding the cultivated pototorums are, are, aren't taking much longer than 6 or 7 years um, when they're being taken care of in the sense that they're just being weeded once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so wild, wild tobalas that are growing on the side of a cliffside or in the rocks underneath a tree are going to take longer to develop. But, um, you know, a, a non-shade, totally open to the sun, could be six to six to seven years. Okay. That's, that's what the batch is coming up. Um, as these are wild harvested, we're going to, Amando's going to, I mean, at the end of the day, most producers are guessing. They don't know every right. age yeah. and everything, but he's going to say anywhere between six and ten years. Okay. Um, yeah. Salucita, you guys. Yeah. Salud, salud, salud. Is this distilled in clay? So Amando distills in clay. Um, he and his family hand mash with wooden mallets when they after roasting, mm-hmm. and they ferment their agave in rawhide. Um, so ah, okay. It's bull skin stretched yeah. across four posts. Yeah. Um, and the, what was the quantity of this batch? Most of his batches at, at the high end are running around 200, 220 liters. Yeah, we're um, talking about small. Yeah. I mean, that's the majority of what you bring over here. They're they're pretty small batches, right? Right. And, and one of what we're trying to accomplish, I mean, there there could be, and I know what we do, so I'll talk about what we do and, and, and leave apart. <laughs> okay. um, but other people might think, okay, Amando makes 200 liters of uh, papalame a month, more or less, maybe every six weeks. Um, let's put- Full year production cycle? Mm, this year, yes, because it's just not raining out there. Um, contingent upon the weather yeah it's more of you stop in the rainy season and this year they're like well it's not really raining um but it's also kind of a other other ripe agave available and um are the other jobs and work that people do that that, because most of the mescaleros i work with it's not the only thing that they do um amando's dad is a is a panadero he's a bread maker Mm -hmm. or a baker i suppose amando himself has a bunch of livestock that he he's in the livestock trade he buys and sells animals Mm -hmm. um anyways uh he um the point with the i guess sorry try to go back on on track is that rather than take five batches that amando's made in a six or seven month period and put them all in a tank um, we're going to let each one of those expressions stand for themselves. So, because quite frankly, his mezcal from January is different than February and mm-hmm. different from March. We talk a lot about that on the on the podcast that the time of year, because these are naturally fermented, and you know, there's so many different variables at play all the time. The choices of of Armando, right, of, mm-hmm. of, of how he chooses to cut it and etc. So, um, it's interesting though because what you're saying is that like you're not allowing any of these to be blended in any kind of a way and for the for the majority they're not being rested on purpose right they're right. being bottled and put out directly mm-hmm. okay and there's a, there's a point about this too i want to make because there, there's a discussion sometimes in the mezcal community about real mezcal is 45 percent and above 
Mondo's Mezcal is somewhere between 44 and 46. Okay. Um, sometimes he gets a little 44 because he makes, first he makes wide cuts. Um, something that if he were part of the denomination of origin, he wouldn't be allowed to do. Um, so he can distill a little bit lo longer into his tails. He can get a little bit more out of, out of a precious raw material. And he can kind of hit the flavor profile that people in this town like their mezcal. They don't want the cordon cerrado. They don't like the people in East Catlan are not looking to drink mezcals at 48 or 50 percent. They like mezcals where visually you taste test and you see the bubbles form and they break. Um, apart from that, he is in the second distillation. He's putting in a bit of fermented mash in the in the in the boiling chamber. That's interesting. Um, it's a way to kind of conserve your clay pots so if you're trying to boil or double distill something and you just have liquid in there it's much more likely to heat up and fracture putting a bit more weight in there is going to preserve the lifetime of those clay pots um, it's like diffusing the heat a little bit yeah exactly it's diffusing the heat a little bit mm -hmm. and and it's also but it quite frankly the final product is 20 percent single pass single distillation mm -hmm. he's got a little bit of yanito which is what they call the first distillation mm -hmm. a lot in with the, the finished mezcal um so that brings the proof down a little bit more and i only mentioned that because some people go wow it's only 44 yeah but it's really interesting to hear his process because um this is sort of like insider trading of of how each decision matters and how it it you know the final product that you're drinking is just a series of all these decisions that are being made constantly in the moment just um, a little bit also people worrying about, you know, you're, you're proofing down an alcohol to make it more. And it right. happens. You know, we, oh, know yeah, absolutely. We, we know it happens. So seeing something that is 44 and under or 40 or 42 and you don't really know the story is complicated. Yeah, like, myself included. I, I think, you know, before I even understood this I was, or, or like understood his process, I was sometimes critical of like, hmm, right, you know, sure. Why is that so low ABV? And yeah. there's some sometimes there's a legit reason why. Nonetheless, it's really yummy. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess this is a good segue for me to ask um, the philosophy around choosing to be uncertified. So you bottle as um, destilado de agave, and on the bottle it says a spirit distilled from agave. Right. Um, why? This is, um, and it's great we're already talking about Amando because when I started thinking about uh, taking this to a larger audience, um, we started buying samples and doing lab tests on them to make sure they could be certified if they met the, the chemical parameters of the CRM. The CRM is the Consejo Reglo de Mezcal. And um, Amando in particular, some of his batches were quote unquote failing the test. Um, and that was mostly due to the production process. So exactly what I was talking about is having a little bit of a first distillate in your final product, um, and then including a bit more colas, which mm -hmm. have a bit more volatiles. Mm -hmm. um, it's the methanol that we talk a lot about yeah. on the show, yeah. Um, and which is um, still totally fine and safe to consume. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, the percentages that we're talking about are minute, but you know the parameters are what they are for the CRM, so... And, and with Amando in particular, and Amando, the producers I work with in general are almost all grandfathers. Amando's 28. Like, we hang out on the weekends. You know, like, we're, we're, we're buddies. And at this point, at this time, um, we're having a conversation where I asked them a question about, hey, like, I want to certify, but, like, I don't, what do we have to do different with your mezcal so it passes? And that in itself is a point where it's like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to say, Amando, stop making mezcal the way that you were taught to make mezcal, the way that you proudly make mezcal. Um, I don't want to intervene in your process. And then right in that moment, I was like, if I'm going to get involved with this, I should try and leave as much as small as possible footprint. Um, so by not being certified allows us to be a non-intervention brand. Um, Producers ask me constantly, do you want this to be higher proof? Do you want this to be lower proof? What should I do? What agave should I make? And there's really only like kind of one rule, if, we, if you even want to call it that, which is try to make mezcal the way you're making mezcal before we ever met and work with ripe agaves that are accessible to you, preferably from the region. There's something else um, that we did, we've heard in the past too, that um, because uh, each palenque has to be certified, 
right? So that if you're working with multiple palenques, with multiple producers, then there's multiple certifications that need to be happening as well, right? So there's an argument to be said that you wouldn't be able to bring as much, perhaps, diversity with producers that over. Is, that is only if you are paying the palenque exclusively to work with you. Because a lot of these palenques work with different people. They don't, unless you have... Uh, That's right. If you're the first one on the ground to do it. Sure. But if, it, if you're talking about paying everybody's certification, I think it's, they're, they're independent business too. So, I, I mean, I think for the amount of mezcal that most of the producers we work with are producing, certifying on their, on their own behalf probably would have been very challenging. Um, I respect and I understand a lot of brands invest in certifying a, a, a distillery. Um, without actually taking ownership of the distillery, right? And it's like, oh, I got to get you to market and here are the few thousand dollars that it require. Um, but the other thing was, it's kind of like, it's introducing someone who is outside of the process to regulate it. And so that so that means if we're opening to certification, that means that we're allowing verificadores, which are basically like verifiers or inspectors to come and quote unquote, sign off or not sign off on someone's ancestral process. Um, and the idea didn't, I didn't like that idea that much uh, of a mezcalero not having the final authority about whether or not his product is mezcal. I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate on this, and it's just a thought. What is the benefit? What do you think is the benefit of getting a certification? Because it has to have one. It cannot just be all like, oh, this is a waste of time. So what is the benefit that you can see on the verification the certification, the actual people coming and check the the palenque, the actual people passing the exams. Like, what do you think is but, is the positive part of it? Because we always talk about like the, the the difficulties, but they must have something positive. Absolutely. Um, I think one is the word mezcal on your bottle. I mean, that helps a lot because people recognize. Not many people go spirit distilled from agave. <laughs> I think that's what my husband likes. I'm going to buy a bottle. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. what is that? Yeah. That's a very you have to know a little bit. To, term. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I guess we, we have been on this for a while. So yeah, you, you forget yeah. what it's like yeah. to not know. <laughs> no, the thing is, agave spirits are mezcal, mezcal is agave spirits. Like the 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 difference is at least in New York is close to none. Right. Mm, no, this is something that even uh, on, on this visit, like when we're talking to a beverage director who's got to curate. Their whiskeys, their bourbons, their scotches, their tequilas, their their in make a cocktail program. Not every buyer has the time to really do the research behind this, and it's just like, well, I don't. It doesn't say mezcal on it. That's not good. And you go, okay. Well, I mean, this is like a thirty-minute right. explanation, and right. and neither Next you nor restaurant. I have the time. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so that's one. Um. And then the second thing too, I would think that it's interesting to see the CRM sponsor um like trainings. So sometimes about agricultural trainings, um, and sometimes it's about production issues. Like, oh, how to make a more, how to get a more efficient yield from your ferment? How to get a more efficient? Uh, what's the best way to to cut agave in certain seasons? And I think for a mescalero who is maybe not initi- like not very initiated or doesn't have a ton of family history, those are really great resources that those guys can lean on. Um, I think if I can imagine Alberto Martinez who who makes some Sierra Negra for us in Tobala at a class like that, I don't see him being like, yeah, you're telling me something I don't know. Right. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's been doing it for 45 years. Um, so that didn't see, that wasn't appealing, I think for the, the mescaleros I work with. So what is it like for you? Um, because you've been working with the producers that you have now for a while, for a few years at mm-hmm. least, right? Since you started and building those relationships. Um, what's it like to go search out possibly a new producer to, do they know about you? Can they find you? Like, how does how does that process work for for Cinco Sentidos? It's something I've kind of dialed back in the past year or so. So, like personally, my personal interest is try to represent every region and every production style and every agave. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by it, and I want to play a role in it. Um, this year, it's been a bit more like okay. This, the, the the important thing is making sure the producers we already work with are taken care of in every sense that we that we can work together mutually beneficially. Um, so that mezcal is not sitting in the bodega for too long. We're finding a market um, that any necessity in the palenque is being taken care of, and any non palenque related necessity that's also a personal health issue or a personal issue in general, um, we're focusing on that. 
So I still do go out, mostly in Puebla. I, I'll go back to Michoacan again sometime soon. I've taken a few trips out there. Um, but the intention at this point is not to do quote unquote big business with producers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I've, I've got a restaurant in Mascaleria in Oaxaca. I'd like to get 20, 30, 40, 50 liters of your spirit, bottle it and represent what you're doing somewhere far, you know, somewhere far from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff is like, you know, I, I have all the photos on my phone and I leave a card and I talk to people about what my project is um, without necessarily planting the seed of we'll be in business forever. Um, right. I've, I've, I've learned kind of the hard way that, um, sometimes when you have a purchase initial purchase like that, that can make someone think, okay, you're going to, you're going to be you're, our you're brand owner. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so now it's a bit more like, Hey, I'd like to try this. And I like to put it up in front of people. I think what you do is incredible. I'm going to mm-hmm. credit you on the bottle. Hopefully someday someone else who's interested in working with you can learn from that as well. And, um, you know, in the meantime, let's, let's stay in touch about stuff. Um, but we're not, we're not really trying to, at this moment, bring in a lot more producers into the, to, to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, we're within a couple months time, we'll be releasing kind of a curated mini collection, all of some spirits that I've, I've bought from Cinco Sentidos producers in Mexico mm-hmm. that we, exclusively for sale in Oaxaca. We're going to start bottling a, a few of their batches in the Colección Mixteca. Um, so they're rare agaves people haven't heard of sometimes and really using very obscure production techniques. And what will it be the, the most of, like the most interesting that you have seen? Uh, Something that you haven't seen before? The So we've been buying mezcal from Delfino uh, in San Pablo, Amayatepec for about three years. So if you've been coming to El Estilado, like people have been hoarding away their pisora bottles, their... Um, this, yeah, so it's pisora, which is a type of mamorata, um, and it's papalote, which is either a macrocanta or a potaturum, depending where he's harvesting from. Really, really exceptional mezcals that are distilled in like a homemade three-plate still that they call a lenteja, or like a lentil, because they have these little bulbs, like they look like a little lentil bean. Hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a reflux still. It's basically a very small Armagnac still that... Is it metal? It's made out of metal, yeah. So it made it's made out of metal. It goes into a copper turbine where it's condensing. Okay. Um, but essentially, it's it's kind of like the Ahutla still, but reinvented and and even more rudimentary. By having a third plate, what what does it do? So they do single distillation, okay. and they've, so they've got, yeah. So it's yeah. a so it's a triple pass, I guess. You know, um, um, where the volatiles are condensing before they can make it all the way through, and then being redistilled. Um, it's like. You look at it and you go, that looks like the most rustic still I've seen in my life. And then it's actually cool because there's a degree of efficiency in it. Um, that What does the ABV comes out of that? Um, around between 45 and 50 for a final, like a final blended product, um, right? So they're still gonna, they're still gonna get high, high tails. They're still gonna get, I'm sorry, high, high puntas and low ABV tails. Um, and then they're gonna redistill tails in the second, in the next distillation in the next batch, like most muscularos do. So over the full run, I can't give you the. I can't. I can't let you know if it's. Um, We're still in New York City, you guys. <laughs> Over the- There's a long beep of a car horn outside. <laughs> Traffic is real yeah. in the city, so I'm not entirely positive if the still itself is more efficient or if it's giving you a final product that's at a higher ABV. But uh, Delfino and his family are going to blend the mezcal to 40, 48 and fifty with heads, tails, and then. Leftover tails, they'll reuse them in, a, in another distillation or another batch. Something that I really admire um, from how you guys are labeling and also the information that can be found. I know we talked a little bit, the website maybe isn't quite up to date with all the expressions that you have to offer, but at least in New York, um, T. Edward Wines is your distributor mm-hmm. and they have a pretty thorough description of at least what they have to offer in the New York market. And I encourage anybody to go on it. If you haven't tried Cinco Sentidos and you're thinking about it, these stories about how this stuff is made, the detail in which you describe it is is really intriguing. And, and it p- creates a sati- kind of narrative picture where you can imagine it being made. And for those of us that care about how things are made, in you know descriptive kind of geeky way um it makes all the difference it really does like i have notes here that i know that we're not going to get to in this conversation so i hope you come back sometime and we can really geek out about all your expressions but like you know like the habali tobala for example um 
you know, cooked for seven days. That's seven days in the ground mm -hmm. being roasted. And, you know, for whatever reason that is, I want to know why. Why is that? You know? <laughs> well, it's funny though, because it's, and it's a great conversation starter. I think we have a different batch of Alberto floating around that's like a 25 or 28 day cook. It's wow. not because the, the, the oven's been rolling that long. Right. It's because life happens. Oh, okay. Um, so in that case, it was like, we don't have the hands or the time to unearth our oven. Yeah. When they unearth, they want to mash immediately afterwards and then ferment immediately afterwards. They don't like the idea of an, of a dry ferment or an exposed pina. Mm -hmm. So it's, we'll keep it underground until we... So does it get funky? Does it grow mold? Does yeah. it like... And it's not necessarily yeah. on fire. Like the roast, the, it cools down in some way or form. Uh, yeah. I think, I think in most mezcal ovens, the fire is probably out after three or four days. Yeah. Um, and may, maybe, you know, maybe five, depending on the build of it. But when you have a producer um, who is, who is sometimes leaving things underground, yeah, they're going to start molding. They're starting to get funky. They're very soft. They're fragile. You yeah. Know? And, sure. Um, I w I went they're tender, right? Because they've just been resting, they've essentially. Been de decomposing <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Does overcook exist? Um. I think in that particular case, which is, it's, you know, it takes so much time to, to learn how to isolate these variables. But what I've noticed, and that, that's happened now with Alberto for probably three occasions where they've had 20 plus day roasts, and all of them have this really striking eucalyptus nose that they otherwise, that doesn't appear in his spirits. And you're like, whoa, is this because of the fermented roast? And, and, and the, I felt, <laughs> I don't... <laughs> like to pat myself on the back, but recently it happened again and he pulled out a recently distilled batch and I was like, this was in the oven for like 15 days, right? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it was 18 days. It was 18 days. You know, I had, I had, um, techio with the community. I had, I had to do some community service. Um, I couldn't be at the Palenque to unearth and do our, and see through our final process. And I was like, all right, like my palate's finally picking stuff up it. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it takes time to really figure that out. Um, but yeah, those, those are all details and decisions. And, and again, sometimes just life happens. So we really um, talk a lot on the program about um, transparency and, you know, efficacy. And I think that the one of the best ways for the consumer to be able to decipher what they're reading about or what they're looking about is the information that's on the label, of course, is, is the first kind of... Um, moment that they're going to probably come in contact with your brand. But and then it's also doing a little bit more research if they so choose on online, right? And mm -hmm. so like I was mentioning, you know, T. Edwards is a really great resource to learn more about um, what Cinco Sentidos is offering and the mescaleros and producers that they're partnering with. Um, are all of your producers right now in Oaxaca? I think you have one from Puebla. We work with um, Marcelo Luna, okay, and he's from Santa Maria Zoyatla in Puebla. Mm -hmm. He produces the Pechuga de Mole Poblano. Oh, yeah. And in the restaurant, we have um, an Espadilla, an Espadilla distilled with Damiana. Sometimes we have a Papalome from him. He just about once a year, he'll make a Papalome. Oh, cool. But no, then, no other states represented in currently? Export, no. Okay. But at, no. at, the, at, at the, El Destilado. Yeah, okay. El Destilado, yeah. we've got a couple of Michoacan expressions, mm -hmm. um, one from Jalisco. Um, Michoacan has been really on the radar these days. We did a whole episode about it. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful state and they make some beautiful mezcals. The yeah. tradition is very distinct. Um, yeah. I like it a lot. And then from, um, there'll be three other um, Poblano producers represented in the Colección Mixteca when we, when we bring that out. Oh, that's right. I yeah. remember you talking about that. When when is that coming? Yeah, when is that coming? Does, do you have a date? We I are ready. I think in November, probably October. And where um, where will you be offering that? What markets? You mentioned it at Show the V, and yeah, we didn't read in February. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, welcome to my life, my yeah, friends. Right. Um, we uh, there were some TTB label like labeling issues that we held back, and then also it's you know it's it's we can't crank the labels once they're finally approved out overnight, and right. um, but everything is labeled, bottled, ready to be sold. So yeah, California will get some. To, uh, Chicago will get a nice, a nice uh, piece of the Colección Mixteca, and then New York will as well. Um, and I think those are the three markets where we'll have it available. I look forward to that. It's exciting. It's yeah. cool. They're new flavors, yeah. um, which is, I know every mezcal, every batch has new flavors, um, but like they're just they're distinct. They're they're things that aren't. They haven't been registered in our palates yet. I think a lot of mezcal drinkers. So it's pretty exciting. 
And can you just briefly give a description to the audience of what the um, program is, like what you guys are offering with this, yeah. with these batches? So the Colección Mixteca, we have um, six different batches made by four different mezcaleros. Um, all of them are from the Mixteca Poblana or the Mixteca Alta in Oaxaca. Um, it's like a 50 liter, 56 liter batch of Mexicanito. It's a rotocanta, distilled in a hybrid still clay pot condensing chamber, um, stainless steel boiling chamber. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's very perfumed. It's very distinct. Um, yeah, a lot of florals are going to come through with that Mexicano. Yeah, yeah. It's neat. It's very, it's, 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 it's neat. And it's also, um, a way for us to start including Anatolio Ramirez, he makes uh, the espadine. We buy almost all of the espadine that he makes for our restaurant. Um, and some of it's for a cocktail program and some mm-hmm. of it's bottled apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, oh, cool. Like we can take a batch and show more people what you're doing. Um, we have a pichomel, which is uh, coming from Reyes Mazontla. I went to Reyes Mazontla a couple of years ago to learn about ceramics and pottery. They mm-hmm. make beautiful barro roñido. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just happened to ask at, like, uh, at a little tiendita. I was like, you guys have little mezcal glasses. People make mezcal here? Well, there's one guy. And he makes incredible, incredible mezcal from pichomel, uh, marmorata. Yeah. Uh, in a very, very rustic still as well. Um basically using recycled um, galvanized steel barrels for his steel setup and also using clay that his wife made like as part of like the apparatus in the oh, still. I look forward to seeing pictures of that. Uh, that would be cool. amazing. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah. We have a Candelillo. Candelillo is um, a Karwinski that grows in Puebla. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't believe it until I saw it, you know, and uh they have a different process. They're going to roast with all of like that starchy bark on the plant okay. as opposed yeah. to cut off. And I was like, wait, why do you, why do you roast that way? You know, cause in, in Oaxaca, you consider that that's like bitter. Like those are tannins. And he's like, and that bark we're talking on the pina, the long kind of bat shaped yeah. part of the agave of the Karwinski specifically. These are like the tall, long ones with the like short. Well, the pencas can be various lengths, but you know they tend to be kind of short and stocky in the top. Right. Yeah. And they're very, very fibrous. They're very tough at the trunk. And I was like, what? Well, you know, why do you why do you roast with these? And he's like, because it's a lot easier to cut them off afterwards. Oh, <laughs> and I was smart. like, well, that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Practicality. Um, but also, you know, a very, he's using a cazuela as part of it still. They're also, they're repurposed uh, galvanized steel barrels. Um, we have a couple expressions from Delfino who I talked about with this three plate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is very neat. Are you offering some of these in the restaurant at the moment? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what I wanted to just mention was that although you guys don't have distribution in Mexico for Cinco Sentidos, mm-hmm. if anybody comes to visit El Desolado in Oaxaca, they'll be able to try all of this stuff, which yeah. is which is great. Absolutely. They're not always they're not always the same batches in the States right. as they are, but the, all the mescaleros are represented. Even better. You get um, to try different juice. <laughs> and it's cool. Um, you know, staff training is like, all right, who wants to go to Palenque on Monday? You know, so all of all of our all of the the people who work behind the bar or in service have been to at least three palenques that we're working with. Um and if you have more time with us than you've been to all twelve, ten that are represented on our on our back bar. Um so it's everyone on our team not only are they like really geeky and studious about mezcal and they like to share it, but they've had a personal connection with the people who are making it. And that's what we're trying to do as a brand. It's like yeah. make um, the shortest chains possible between a, 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 someone who likes mezcal and someone who makes mezcal. Do you have any instances of um, employees that have trained with you guys and worked there and then gone off and kind of had their own journey and continue in the mezcal industry or in agave distillates? We have virtually zero turnover. Okay. Um, people stay. <laughs> yeah, people stay. Yeah. Um, our, our bartender left a few months ago. Our head bartender, who's an incredible whiz at cocktails, left to start his own business. So mm-hmm. it's like, that feels great. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Not, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, just like. But it was a pastry business. Um, oh, okay. So, but, yeah. but, and then. Nonetheless. <laughs> it's awesome because yeah. he also, he got it, he set it up, he got it running, and then he hit me up and he was like, hey, uh, I can do a couple of shifts a week if you want. We're like, all right, Josue is coming back, That's you know, awesome. because right. he's like the chemist, you know, yeah. he's the chemist bartender. Um, He's a really, really powerful. Well, if he's force a baker, yeah, there's a lot of chemistry involved in that. So, yeah. yeah, that's great. And okay, so quickly before we we lose you, um, please tell the audience about your new project. Oh yeah, um, so we are going to bring in an agricultural style Oaxacan rum. 
Or in fact, we're bringing it in now. It's, it's a, yesterday was launch day in here. New York. It is here. It has arrived. Um, it's called Cañada. Um, it's kind of an homage to the region that it comes from. So Cañada, people think that might mean sugarcane, but it's really in reference to one of the eight regions in Oaxaca, uh, which is characterized by um, subtropical humid mountain valley. Um, so Cañada really means river basin. Um, we're working with a third generation producer family. Four brothers are involved in the production process. Um, they've been making rum or aguardiente since about the mid thirties. Um, it's, it's altitude rum. So the cane is hand harvested between 2000 and 4,000 feet above sea level. It's all organically farmed. Um, this story behind it's crazy. Um, Max Krasel, first generation German immigrant comes over in 1916. Uh, 1917 as a 16 year old, um, his aunt and uncle send him on a boat and say, get out of here. Um, you know, his brothers died as part of the war. His family died as part of the war. And they said, let's just get out of Germany. Um, they put him on a boat. He ends up in Veracruz, um, starts working on fincas or, uh, cafe and cane farms that at that time in Mexico's history were run usually by Spaniards. Mm -hmm. Um, slowly but surely makes his way to the Oaxacan side of the Sierra, meets his wife, gets married works on a coffee farm, learns how to make aguardiente, and then moves out of town, builds his own still. He makes his own his own different type of still that no one else in the region is using. Um, it's efficient and resourceful, and it's it's a different beast than what people are using in, in the aguardiente region. Um, and within his second generation, his sons carry on the aguardiente tradition, but they also become pilots. So Santa Maria Talixtac, where this is made, is a four-hour drive from today, a four-hour drive from the nearest paved road. Mm -hmm. Back then, there's no paved road, no paved road in the Santa Maria until the mid-80s. So how do you sell your aguardiente? And those times, they were muling it, literally muling it, sometimes week-long trips, you know, walking through the mountains. And they get a plane, and they start flying to mm -hmm. the region and, and doing 300 liter drops at different towns for their, their fiestas patronales. Um, so the Crassel family is like really responsible. They have their own distribution network going they on. Did, right? They do, they're distributing. Yeah. El Señor de las Cañas. <laughs> ah, <see? Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, I mean, such a cool, rich history. They've been documenting it. They have photos of the old Cessnas that they were using. Um, there's so much pride. And in this particular region of Oaxaca, um, we're about 100, maybe 80 miles away from the big Aguardiente region. Anyone who makes Aguardiente has Crassel as, as a last name, either the first or the second. So mm. they're, they're all descendants of Max. Um, so just he was busy. He was a busy, <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was, he was a busy guy. Um, anyways, it's it's a it's a 53% um, still strength Aguardiente um, from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. Um, ambient fermentation between six and 10 days. Everything is hand harvested. Ambient fermentation, does that mean like a natural fermentation Yeah, process? natural fermentation. Okay. Yeah, so just letting the yeast that are in the air pop off the fermentation. Um, it's it's an agricultural style rum. The type of still that they're using kind of dials back half a notch some of the funk that we assume with agricultural style, or agricultural style rum. So it's it, for the uninitiated, it's a lot more accessible and... and, and um, interesting without going whoa this is like mm -hmm. way crazy funky but you smell it and you go wow this is fresh cut sugarcane this is the sugarcane juice that i drank at the trapiche um and we've been we've been playing with it for like a year in the restaurant in terms of uh, it makes a beautiful daiquiri mm -hmm. that makes a beautiful agricole negroni um it's fun to put in some some tiki classics and it's a different part of oaxaca that i'm very excited to Again, kind of connect the dots, you know, mm -hmm. bring bring a bring a family tradition and their story to an audience that are that these days are interested in, in hearing about. And is the way that you're um, disseminating the information via the label and website and everything the same as you do for Cinco Sentidos? I did learn that I've, I've seen too many times where someone grabs a Cinco Sentidos label and they look at this huge block of text and they go... <laughs> too many words. Go, huh. And uh, so it's it's distilled a little more down. It's a little more, it's a little less dense. Listen, the process. man, I'm looking at it right now. There's like two paragraphs. No, no but the thing is, yours is paragraphs. They're, they're not bullet points. You actually have to read through it. Yeah, a, they're full sentences, yeah. you guys. A full, it's a full story, so yeah. watch out, our non-readers. Um, but it's... Uh, it's a little it's a little more concise, but their website is really um, 
really, I, would, I don't know how do you say it, just very expansive. Um, and so on the bottle, it's labeled Aguardiente? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's an Aguardiente and, and TTB certifications are going to make us call that a rum, right? So it's, it is called a rum and it's recognized as an Aguardiente de Oaxaca okay. um, on the label. And that's how people in the community would call this either Aguardiente or just straight caña. Caña, uh, So yeah. just drink a ca caña, cañazo. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us. Um, if you guys could tell, there's a million other questions that I have for you. So hopefully we'll meet again. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Salud, salud. Hey, Hey Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salisita.